Hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 190. So glad you could join me. Sorry for the delayed start. I was trying to get Twitter running, and I think Twitter is now a subscription service overnight and uh, won't allow it. So I think we might not stream on Twitter anymore. But we are live on Facebook and YouTube. Um, as I should say, Rattle's publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publications since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. Uh, we just do this we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. And make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Anything you can do to help spread poetry around the internet would be greatly appreciated. Um, as always, we're going to start with our um, Poets Respond poet, but today's guest is Julia Kolchinski-Dazbach, and she'll be here in about 10 minutes. Uh, but let's talk to Elizabeth McMunn-Tatenko right now. She had Sunday's poem um, back several days ago uh, about serious people. Um, hey, Elizabeth, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you could be here. Um, so to start out, tell us a little bit about what the... Um, what what the poem what inspired the poem because i don't watch this show and i have to even look at again what the show is called succession i know nothing about this it was just a really cool poem so tell us what succession is and what inspired the poem so basically succession is this show that's on hbo and it's about this family that i think is loosely based on the murdochs although i'm not completely sure about that um but they run a bunch of media corporations and so the whole premise of the show is that they're trying to figure out who's going to succeed um the father who is getting you know older and who had founded the company mm-hmm. and so um it's kind of a dark comedy um and yeah, my husband and I have been re-watching it, and the new season's out, and so um, so we've been watching that, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I Googled, it was, like, um, um, a whole bunch of, like, spoilers. So so I thought, like, I better not read about this, because in case I want to watch the show, it was like, how, oh, my God, this happened this week. But but there was a, a line in particular that stood out to you. And so, so what was that line, and how did that inspire a, a poem? Yeah, so basically there was a line in the episode before last week where Logan, who's the the um, the patriarch says to his adult children that he loves them, but they're not serious people. And I felt like that just really struck me um, because I feel like, you know, how do you become a serious person? Um, I guess, I guess I'm not. Um, but it was, it was just really interesting to me just thinking about like, you know, what does that look like? And I think, you know, it's arguable on the show that, that none of these people are serious people for, for a variety of reasons, but it just, it seemed like such a cut. And that was really really interesting to me, too, to, to think about it that way. Yeah, well, let's hear the poem, Serious People. Why don't you go ahead and read it? Yeah, Serious People. That's what we want for our children, isn't it? Shoulders that fit like shoulder pads, not sloping gravel ones, the pieces flying off. I need to make everything small so I can see. Pennies with date stamped because somehow that will matter. Tips of teeth. Someone told me once his biggest fear is death. No, I'm just kidding. It was failure. Like it might come out and eat him. Like the people on the street would somehow know. It's springtime now. I'm watching hawks during my meetings, holding cloud shade on their backs. All the heart-shaped arcs of bees doing their work. 
Yeah, and that was um, Sunday's poem from Poets Response, Serious People by Elizabeth McMunn Tatenko. And Elizabeth, I wanted to ask you about your, your style of writing, because I always love your submissions. I kind of, you know, the, the submissions are anonymized when I'm reading it, but I kind of always know it's you, because you have a very distinct way of using short lines and um, and, and, and really image-rich short lines, and there's a the sound that comes through that way. Um, why do you sort of go about writing poems the way you do? do, you, do you think, and, and, how, and I want to ask, too, how the, the revision process goes through. Is it, do you start with longer poems and shrink them down into that really tight, concise package, or do they just come out this way? So it sort of depends. Um, I was thinking about this one in particular. Um, I had We went skiing on Thursday, and on the way back, I was kind of like putting some notes in my phone about ideas. And I wrote this really terrible draft um, that was, you know, horrible. And I was looking at it later, and I was kind of like, okay, I feel like I have to kind of get horrible drafts out a lot of times to help me sort of think like, okay, what, what am I actually trying to say and what do I not need and what do I maybe want to add more? Um, so I feel like a lot of it is kind of, you know, trying different things out for me. Um, I feel like when I'm lucky, something will come and it will kind of fit together right away. But a lot of times I feel like I actually, this sounds maybe <laughs> not normal, but I feel like a lot of times I have to, um, to kind of um, think about what am I actually saying here and try to kind of structure it that way. I feel like a lot of times when I first start, I'm just kind of like putting things out there because I feel something, but I don't really know how to say what that is yet. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's a very <laughs> good answer. No, definitely. It's just interesting to, to see and talk to you more because, you know, you submit poems really regularly and we publish you frequently in the Ecfrastic Challenge. You've won that a couple times and um, in Poets Respond a few times. I do always look forward to seeing your poems. Um, thanks for, for sharing them as always. And, and thanks for sharing this one on Sunday, Elizabeth. No, thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Take care. And I'll, I'll talk to you later. You too. And that was uh, Elizabeth McMoon Tatango. That was Sunday's poet. Uh, her poem, Serious People, is on Rattle's website, of course. Now we're going to take a quick break and get to our main guest, um, Julia kochinski dasbach So sit tight, and I'll be right back. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Like I said, today's guest is Julia kochinski dasbach You'll recognize her from Poetry Response segments in the past. Um, she's the author of three poetry collections, 40 Weeks from Yes, Yes Books, the new one that just came out, uh, Don't Touch the Bones from Lost Horse, Press, which was one of the 2019 Idaho Poetry Prize, and The Many Names of Mother, which won the Wick Poetry Prize. So everything pretty much wins prizes. She's also a finalist for the Jewish Book Award. She's currently working on a poetry collection as well as a book linked of linked lyric essays, both of which grapple with raising a neurodiverse child with a disabled partner under the shadow of the war in Ukraine, Julia's birthplace. Her poems have appeared in poetry, plowshares all over the place, um, and she holds an MFA in Poetry from the University of Oregon and a PhD in Comparative Literature and Literary Theory from the University of Pennsylvania. In the fall of 2023, Julia will join Denison University as Assistant Professor of English and Creative Writing. And here she is, Julia Kolchinski-Dasbach. Hey, Julia, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you so much for having me at a lovely midday change of hour. <laughs> yeah, and so this is an opportunity, and I should say, thanks for reminding me, that there is an open mic later. So this is an opportunity for people who, who the Rattlecast is too late, 
for the open mic or it's a, a bad time for them, this is your big chance to shine on the open lines in about an hour. So have a poem ready. I'll give instructions later. But uh, it is nice to have, po- have episodes at different times. We have a couple Irish poets coming up who will be doing shows at this time on a Monday. So there's a couple more opportunities, too. But it is nice to move around a little bit, even though the circumstances were, were rough. My internet was out all day, and they kept saying, like, oh, it'll be back on in an hour. It'll be back on in two hours. But it never came back on, so we had to postpone. Um, but anyway, I'm so glad we could have you here. What do you want to start? Uh, let's start with a poem. Uh, what do you want to read first? Um, so I'll start with the opening poem of, you know, 40 weeks, because it's going to be out next week. So I'm really excited to be reading from the early edition copy. I don't even have the final book copies that'll be coming next week. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. I'll put it on screen for everybody to see, but this is um, this is the cover. A beautiful book, Booth by Yes Yes Books. It's just a wonderful production of it, um, 40 weeks. Um, and then you see the theme, which we can sort of, you know, we'll talk about and understand a little more in a little bit. Um, but that is the book from Yes Yes Books. And let's hear uh, the first poem. Nature must be a mother to pour thunder punch through potholes hoping this will make something anything grow she must be moths mouth wide wings panting for lightning who else would strike herself flame veining the air who else would bear children to rise in spring only to feel them cut months later the moth's charred outline on a log, the double wound, her children's heads sinking, left to dry on another mother's windowsill. Who else would ask for such a violence? Yeah, that's such a great last line, that poem. Who else would ask for such a violence? And the the question, really the central question is, you know, do we have children? And, and you know, how do we in the world as it is? And, and maybe a question that, that human beings have been asking for, for as long as there have been human beings, um, you know, given the, the, the sort of the base nature of humanity is suffering and there's so much that you're putting forth, um, you know, you're signing them up for before they, without their consent, I guess you could say. Um, and so we, the, the book moves through um, 40 weeks of pregnancy um, and contemplating those kind of questions with the, you know, the background going on. Um, so, but let's start out, but besides for talking about that, let's start out just in a general, you know, sort of holistic way of how you got into poetry. You mentioned uh, before we came on air that you visited with your early, uh, one of your first poetry teachers today of all days. So it, it can you tell us so about that? Magical. Um, And I just talked to, you know, fourth graders and third graders about how I got into poetry with their teacher in the room uh, who helped me get into poetry. So emigrating from Ukraine, um, I always grew up hearing Russian language poetry recited in the house, hearing kind of Russian guitar ballads sung by my father. So it was always in my ears, um, but in Russian. And then when I came here at age six, Um, That continued, and I memorized a lot of Russian language poems. And then in third grade, there was a unit on poetry, which asked me to write in English. And I didn't feel like I could even speak the language yet, let alone compose the highest art form in it. Um, And my teacher told me to just do it, to write. And that's what I've been doing ever since. You know, I've been writing in the English language to make it my own. Um, to make it make the music that I hear, yeah. That's that's really a great thing to hear. And and that was third grade that that started. Yeah, third grade, and I've been writing ever since. <laughs> I just never stopped. <laughs> so I mean, your teacher must be really proud, I assume, right? 
Yeah, it was such a magical moment. I just, you know, I got to answer her students' questions and recite the first poem I ever wrote in third grade. Oh, wow. Um, do you, do you have that with you? Yeah, yeah, I can recite it. It's, <laughs> I have it memorized. It's super short. It was about springtime. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was called Spring. And it goes, cuddle up and keep me warm to cherish and to love. You are as sweet as the morning breeze that will carry me to heaven. Then the angels will sing, spring is here. Aww. So that's third grade Julia uh, <laughs> figuring out how to make music in English. Yeah, that is so sweet. And it's uh, you know great to hear because uh, I'm working on the, the next Young Poets anthology too, and that would have fit right in. Um, we would wish you had you wish we had you in third grade. Um, so so let's everybody is asking already about the use of colons in that first poem, and and it's an interesting style. I've never seen it before. So for people who are just listening on the audio podcast, there are those sort of the the cut that sort of binds these sentence fragments together. Uh, the punctuation mark there. Uh, I should put it on screen again if I can find it. Is um, a colon, and but you do a colon, so there's a space colon space between these fragments of um, the words. Here, take a look at it again. From nature must be a mother. So to pour colon thunder colon punch through potholes colon. So what are you thinking when you go through those poems? It's a really interesting style. There's a there's a totally different like cadence that comes across um, with that. There's a very staccato kind of thing going on. Um, so so how do you how did you come to those? In, in, come to that style of poem and and what does it do for you can you talk a little bit about that sure you know i think the first poet i saw doing it and i'm sure that they are not the first um but that's where i saw it was sam Sachs. um and they're an amazing poet highly recommend you read sam's work their new book pig is coming out but they have two other books um madness and oh my gosh the other one popped out of my head but sam Sachs. Mm-hmm. um and the the style for me is about building breath um, and building these pauses, but also questioning kind of equalities, how one thing compares to another. So it's a way of making metaphor through syntax, almost mm-hmm. a way of comparing sometimes two unlike things through that colon and asking, you know, what what's complicated about that comparison um, how is to pour the same as thunder, the same as punch through potholes, the same as hoping this will make something, hoping and then anything. And so it it connects parts of that phrase that comes before and just asks us to question, right? It's a it's a poem and it ends with questions and it has rhetorical questions within it. But the syntactic move also is one of questioning and one of opening up of possibilities. Yeah, I hadn't realized it, but isn't that the structure of those SAT type questions where like, you know, this is to this or this, you know, and then you have to fill in what the, you know, the last one is. You're supposed to read it in your head. All the teachers say, read your head like a sentence with the the comparison there to help you f- figure out what they're doing. Um, but yeah, so it's like a string of those. It's really a fascinating way to, to go about um, writing a poem. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah it felt um, it felt like also it mimicked the experience of pregnancy a little bit, where you're constantly moving about the world and being compared to things, comparing yourself to things, and you're constantly through a colon, so to speak, connected to another entity, another thing inside of you that 
both is you and isn't you, right? It's that tenuous mm -hmm. comparison. Yeah, it's so interesting. And of course, the book is structured too through those, um, I, I assume, emails that you get. I remember those from, you know, <laughs> where, you know, you know this week the baby's the size email. of a, exactly, yeah, the size of a peach. This week it's the size of an apricot. You know, it just goes on like that. Um, and so that's how the, the structure of the book works. So it's just a great metaphor and then sort of a, a, a syntactic metaphor too. It's just fascinating. I really love the structure of the book. I should say too that not all the poems um, in the book use that style. So it moves through different styles of poems. Poem. Um, but that is a, a predominant form, and it's a really fascinating form, too. Um, let's hear another poem. Wonderful. Um, so let's move on to Blueberry, week seven. We're starting off early, um, and Blueberry takes place in November. Not that that matters for the poem, but it's important because it was around my son's birthday. Um, and for me, I will say, like, writing these poems weekly was a way to stay connected to myself as a poet, right? Because pregnancy is very consuming. And then mothering a toddler while pregnant was all consuming. And I wanted a project to keep myself anchored to poetry. So this is the project I gave myself. Week seven, Blueberry. The earth has two hidden moons, dust clouds, cosmic tumbleweeds, Overripe, innumerable their particles, practically undetectable, and reach so massive for centuries we looked up only to miss it altogether. When your son had to pee, an urge much like an asteroid's, the day before his third birthday, before you saw his orb sibling wane a clouded screen, he pulled his pants down, the playground full of other children. But there and then he did it, mooning, we call showing our own two hidden globes, a water ray that ships would follow in the night, turned reminder to hide what we've been made ashamed of, the dust and dirt our galaxy mostly flecks and darkness, matter upon matter, not mattering much at all. But tonight you ran with lit up balloons tied to his stroller, neon green and blue and yellow moons, and you thought you felt a waxing light inside. Look! Up there, he said, a moving star, edges fogged by dusk. When I am bigger, I will fly. Am I bigger already? Am I the moons? He must wonder, the hidden ones first seen 60 years ago when mooning got its name, but nobody listened then. And the astronomer was too afraid to ask us, look again. Tonight, on his last evening as a toddler, you'll scour the sky for them their pyramid-shaped glow between the orbits, their audacity to shine instead of shame. Yeah, another beautiful poem that was uh, Week 7, Blueberry. And, of course, Blueberry is the size um, at Week 7. Um, so <laughs> it's just a beautiful poem. Um, and, and I wonder... You know, about the, the, the question of, of why to have children, why to bring children into the world. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about that, about what you go through? Because, you know, I went through the same thoughts, you know, and my kids are 8 and 12, so it's been like 10 years or so since those mm -hmm. thoughts were predominant. But, 
you know, we're facing, um, you know, a, a time where things are not like what they ever were in a way that's, you know, it's it's something that when you have, you know, some, um, you know, if you're if you're living in some ancient society and, and the crops could fail or like the, you know, the neighboring you know, a horde can come and sweep across and brutalize your village. I mean, there's so many terrible things. The Vikings could appear at your doorstep any day. You know, the, the, there's floods and droughts that we have no resistance to. There's all sorts of problems that we've faced as humans. But, but there's, a, there's a difference to what's going on now and because we're, we're facing a change that's sort of global for the first time and not local, even though I don't know if that's a way we would have thought about it before, but also a way that we're changing the... The, the, what it means to be human in a way that we couldn't, you know, as technology is taking over the way our way of life, um, and and in, in a way that's increasing ever more rapidly. And so there's a huge difference to now um, as opposed to those anxieties in the past. I'd say. So so how did you think about those issues as you were um, planning your your family? I think I will first say that I don't know if it's that. Um things have changed. I mean, they of course have changed, but it's more so our awareness Mm -hmm. to global atrocity and to catastrophe immediately. And that in those times, right, the horde could come in and destroy your village, but you weren't necessarily aware that a continent away, this horde was already decimating so many villages. Mm -hmm. So you, You didn't constantly live surrounded in this residue of, trauma of threat of atrocity the way we do with school shootings the way we do with the war in ukraine you know the way we we have with this immediacy of news and technology um and i i think for me as an immigrant who came here as a refugee from ukraine as a jewish writer this instinct to have children this the deep need is one of survival, right? It's the the need to continue to create the next generation so that they can be better than us, uh, so that all of our mistakes that we've made, they can, if not forgive, but move beyond and do better. Um, and I have a, the, the final poem I'll read is on that question, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I, but I think that's a lot of what it is for me is this, um, you know, desire for them to be better and desire to give them something better than what I was given, even though my parents did everything, you know, to give me the best life possible. Mm-hmm. But I want my children to have less shame, to have less inscription into this traumatic history than than I felt I was inscribed into, even though, of course, I'm sure I'm doing the same thing, right? We all try to do better than our parents and often end up <laughs> doing much of the same. Yeah, we definitely uh, do. Yeah. And it's interesting, too. I mean, you know, it, it, we wouldn't be here, of course, if that drive wasn't so strong. You know, it evolved to the point where, you know, it, it was a huge, it's huge evolutionary um, pressure to to have that thought, at least, that we can make it better and that we have to and that we need to, to keep going on or else we wouldn't be here. And anybody who didn't have that drive, 
um, you know, their people died out and that the, the people that, that had that drive in the face of every kind of calamity uh, are the ones that are here to make us. And then we continue that that thread. There's a way, too, that it feels I mean, I remember those thoughts so distinctly. Um, and, and it feels so silly in retrospect, in a way, because when you see the human beings that you create, you're like, how could I even have thought that that their lives are something that, that would be not, you know, that they might not want? I mean, and, and then you think about your own life, like I would want the life, you know, I mean, there's no there's no way that you could not want the life you've been given. And so it's sort of a, it ends up being this weird, you know, this this twisty sort of circular logic where it almost seems absurd that you had those thoughts to me, but then we did though, <laughs> you know? And so does it feel that way too? Does it, you know, once it's happened, does it feel like, well, of course we did this. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to some extent, but also, you know, uh, I don't know, seeing genocide happen over and over and over again, on the one hand, it doesn't feel as absurd because, as much as we almost place all this hope on the next generation, it also takes the agency away from us, right? Like, oh, they'll be better, those <laughs> next ones. But what about us? And what, like, is our only way of making it better to just create more of ourselves? Or is there more that we can do and that we can have agency over? And, you know, for me, that's part of my impulse to write and to keep creating. Um, but, but, I, but I think, I don't know, I think all those feelings are quite valid mm-hmm. and to not as much as you want to give them all these beautiful things and all of these experiences um there's a cost um and the risk of suffering mm-hmm. that comes with it yeah really the certainty of suffering you know i mean suffering is the the fundamental backdrop of humanity we're aware of our own suffering and that what that's what makes us unique and that's what makes us plan and prepare and have imaginations and and but but we pay the price for that um which you know religions have you know, symbolically explained through that through stories and myths. Um, you mentioned the the news being the pr- primary culprit for sort of that the general anxiety that we have, and I think that's completely true. Um, you know, because by a lot of objective measures, the world is better than it's ever been. Like we have, you know, just all across the world, there the the rate people are being lifted out of poverty is just something that's never been seen before in the history of the planet. Um, you know, even though there are wars everywhere, there are fewer, you know, wars and fewer deaths than there ever have been. Um, you know, the, your chance of dying at that is, is lower than it's ever been. Um, you know, there's all sorts of ways that our lives are, are better. We're more connected. We're more open and tolerant than, than we've ever been. We're more understanding of other people, the communi- ability to communicate. I mean, just so many, so many metrics are better. But then the news makes it feel worse. So do you, do you, ever, do you feel the impulse to turn away from all of that and, and not address it? Because you address it so well through poetry. With Poets Respond, you've done a lot of poems um, in Poets Respond that, that address really hard, difficult things. Um, is there an impulse to, to ignore it and just turn off the news and not pay attention and have your own life um, as, as nice as it is, just the, the only thing you focus on? I think I need more of that. Um, I think I had, I, I had to do that for my own self-care and self-preservation about three months into the war. Um, from, you know, the end of February 2022 to March, April to May, maybe to April. I was just so every day, hours and hours. And then I had to survive April and May by completely turning off the news and listening to 90s alternative pop rock and just singing loudly in the car Mm -hmm. um, and living in the moment. I think for me, that's something I am trying to do more of in general 
is just being more present, both on the page and in in my life, being more present mm-hmm. in the moment. Yeah. Um, well, let's keep uh, the poems coming. Uh, next up, I think we have, uh, what would you like to read next? Well, I'm going to read, maybe let's do this. I'll read week nine, um, which is, um, so this book in a funny way, I say it's my least overtly Jewish book. I hardly talk about <laughs> Jewishness in it. So probably it's my most Jewish book because it's my least overt about That's it. Funny. But this is the one poem where it's overt. Um, and I'll just use that as a transition to talk a little bit about Yom HaShoah, which is Holocaust Remembrance Day, which would have been on Monday when we were supposed to have our rattlecast. Um, so this is week nine, grape. Laos, the singular form of lice, small, wingless, you'd never heard of because you never find just one, like the note from your son's school saying, One girl has them, and she's been treated, and you should check every tangle of your son's curls to make sure some haven't found their way inside. And another mother says she'd buzz it all off just to be safe, says he's a boy, so he'll look tougher anyway. And you recall how you were three then too, when your parents nearly shaved you, and the other kids wouldn't share the bench, would run away and yell and point, would laugh how you were infected and dirty and a louse, ruined, Jewish. So you'll refuse to cut his hair and scour each perfect ringlet, twist their multitudes around your fingers. And when you find only more locks, you'll tell him to sit with Evelyn tomorrow to remind her she is beautiful and loved. And that was week nine, Grape, again, from 40 Weeks by Yes, Yes Books, Julia's newest. Um, can you talk a little bit about how um, how your faith uh, relates to poetry? Is there something, I mean, to me, poems always seem like prayers, regardless of which faith you're talking about. They feel like prayers to the to the unknown of the world or to you know which is god it's all the same kind of thing which is the the mystery of life and why we're here and, and to me poetry always feels very spiritual um no matter you know how directly spiritual or tied to one religion the poet is it, it just always has that sense of 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 speaking to to the a higher power um is, is that something that that's really important to you and in, in the way you think about what a poem is So I'll backtrack by first saying that for me, my Jewishness is much less a faith um, and more my ethnicity, my culture, a part of who I am. Um, It's an identity that in the former Soviet Union is um, racialized, right? And it was marked on our passports as we were Jewish. So my parents were forbidden from doing many things. They couldn't get the degrees they wanted. You know, I have a seminal childhood memory of neighborhood boys throwing stones at me and calling me Jid, which is the derogatory, you know, term for Jew. Um, so there, there are all of these bits, and those to me feel very ingrained in my identity. And my faith or my spirituality is far less tied to organized religion, even though I feel myself deeply Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, that said. 
when I write, it is a very spiritual act. And I do feel like as, you know, kind of whimsy as it sounds, that especially when I'm reciting, when I'm reading, even more so than when I'm composing, that I'm kind of overtaken by the poem, by the spirits, the memories of my ancestors, um, wherever they may be, I don't know. But um, I, I do feel very much embodying a kind of connection to the past, connection to history, connection to ancestry. Um, and, 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 and that's a kind of faith for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're writing and, and reciting too, it's really easy to, to, to feel the, the sense that, you know, that, that must have come about as holy books were being created. You know, the feeling that you're the conduit of something different that's not yourself. And that's what we talk about so much as poets of like losing yourself in the poem and, and you know, surprising yourself, saying things that you didn't know you knew. And so, you know, the idea that that that, that comes from an actual physical God is, is really a, a, you can see how that that thought emerges and, and you know, it's shaped the course of history. Um and so, so there's a way that that poetry just just always does that to me, and um, it's interesting to hear hear that too. Um, well, do, do you want to read the other poem, the the um, Holocaust poem that we're going to do on um, on on Monday, yeah. but but still is relevant, of course. Yeah. So um, Monday was Holocaust Remembrance Day, um, and this beautiful new anthology just came out um, called Contemporary Writers Confronting the Holocaust, and it was a really um, fascinating and difficult project where writers were asked to respond to archival photos, um, you know, in an ekphrastic way. Um, and I have to be honest, I, I struggled with it because I, um, I am such a, a, a writer tied to my own history and I didn't feel it was authentic for me to inhabit this, you know, this archival image, um, by looking by, by trying to look through it. Um, so my way was to turn to form, which it often is with these difficult subjects. Um, so I turned to a villanelle, my favorite form. And it was to tie it back to an imagining of my own great-grandfather who um, stayed in Kiev as a partisan um, during World War II, during the Holocaust, and most likely died in Babin Yar, um, in September of 1941, um, which is the largest, you know, two-day massacre during which 33,000 Jews were murdered. Um, but his name isn't in any archive, so we don't we don't know what happened to him. Um, so this is imagining my great grandfather before he was a partisan, before he was a father. Perhaps like them, he sat, feet wrapped or sinking into sand mouth full of waiting, hands stained our people's sacred texts. But no, not by the synagogue steps. Perhaps like them, he sat only beside a river where even Jewish he could blend with Ukrainian birch, mouth full of waiting, hands transforming bark to body, leaving shadowed prints for us to find. Perhaps like them, he sat not knowing it would end or knowing far too well how forests fall 
mouths full of waving, hands unable to keep up with all the bones or names. Perhaps like them, he sat, a mouthful of waiting hands. And I was imagining my great-grandfather before he was a partisan, before he was a father, from uh, this book, uh, this anthology, Contemporary Writers Confronting the Holocaust, uh, New Voices, edited by Howard Debs and Matthew Silverman. And that's going to be the topic for the show in two weeks. So, um, so we have, I think, 10 contributors from that um, from the anthology coming up, and, and Howard, the, who um, put it together, is going to be here too. I think someone else who worked on, on constructing the anthology too will be here. So we're going to be exploring that. Um, how much do you do you feel a duty to write about the topic of the Holocaust and, and about um, your ancestor like that? As a writer, do you think that it's something that you um, feel like you need to do? Yeah, I feel a, a really uh, strong impulse to do so. Um, especially because um, so often as a writer, I was told to write about something else. Like, why do you keep writing about all this? It's in the past. Um, and in fact, I shared <laughs> with the third graders this morning that in grad school, um, a colleague of mine told me once, you know, why don't you just write about fields? Like, write about a field or a flower and have that field or flower make me think about the Holocaust. And I think that's so dismissive to our obsessions, to the things that drive us and to the things that we feel a calling to say. And I really, for me, as I said, it is a connection to my ancestors and and I feel like I have to write it. My mother has said, why you got to stop writing about your great grandmother. She's just turning in her grave. You won't let her rest. Um, and I think that's what she would want. Uh, I can't let it rest. Um because that's when we are most at risk is when we forget our history, when we think that it is past and not present. And particularly now with everything that's happening in Ukraine, it's terrifyingly uh, ghostly, hmm. the similarities and the overlaps in atrocity on the very same soil. So it's, it's all of you know the atrocity around the world um, are just reminders about how little we've learned and how much we need to keep saying it, keep saying it differently, keep using different forms or the same forms, but doing something new with them um, in in order to make a difference, to make a change. Yeah, there, there's so much talk, um, you know, right now about about AI and chat GPT and stuff. So it's interesting to hear you talk about about the idiosyncrasies of our obsessions, which are really what what makes poetry come alive, is the uniqueness of each individual person and what we're drawn to and driven toward. And, um, you know, it's just an example of how, you know, that's never going to work as a, you know, as large language models are not going to write poems because they don't have these kind of obsessions that we do and, and don't have the kind of emotional motivation um, and, and to, to tell certain stories and, and to try to get to the, the reality that we're, we're trying to sort of grapple with as we create art and, and make meaning out of uh, the chaos of experience. Um, do, how, uh, how do you know, like when you're sitting down to write, like, like, I don't know what your writing process is like. Do you write frequently? Do you write or, or do you, is it just as you find time? Do you have a certain time? And, 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 but when you do, when you encounter the page, how do you know what you're going to be writing about? Because the topic of, of the Holocaust is so different 
um, from the topic of, of what you're writing about in this book, 40 Weeks. Um, so, I mean, you had that um, for this book, you had the, the once a week you would write a poem based on that email. Um, mm-hmm. uh, is that always something that you do? Do you always have some kind of prompt to push you in a certain direction or, or how do you confront the blank page? So not always, but I do find that the busier I am, the more prompts or like using the same title or, you know, the great thing that Poets Respond asks us to do is just to write a poem based on a news story. I find that that's really helpful. Um, But in general, I find, you know, some people find the blank page intimidating. I find it inviting. I don't feel like I always know what I'm going to write about, Um, but I write constantly frequently i'm not afraid to write bad things i write tons of bad things that's how you get to grains of goodness um i do a lot of 30-day writing challenges where i'll write you know one poem for 30 days and usually those aren't prompted it's just whatever uh, comes to me and i'm in community doing that um and from doing that about i would say three to four times a year that's you know a lot of days of writing, like 90 to 120 days of writing. Out of that, you're going to get a batch of 30 poems, maybe 40 if you're lucky. It depends. Mm-hmm. Um, but and and lately I've been writing a lot of lyric essays, too. So I'm just I'm a I'm a constant producer. I, I like to produce a lot. It's for me, it's my way of moving about the world. Uh, I often really don't know how I feel or what I think about something until I write it and until I am genuinely surprised by where I've gone, which mm-hmm. is what I love about poetry and nonfiction and why I just can't write fiction. I've tried, but I can't plan from point A to point B to point C. That's boring. I don't mm-hmm. want to know where I end up, even though, you know, I know in fiction, the characters evolve and all this stuff, but you have to have some kind of arc in a poem. That's the joy. There's no arc. There's a meandering. There's, you know, it's it's not a labyrinth where there's a center. It's not even a maze where there's a way in and out. Um, it's just you have no idea where you're going to go. Um, and I love that. I love the discovery of where I'm going to end up. Yeah. Um, there's a, a question, um, uh, or not really a question, but there's a discussion about... Um, about advice and people talking in obsession and, and Lisa uh-huh. Seidenberg uh, on the chat, which I'm reading says, uh, it takes a while to ignore the voices that tell you what and how to write. Uh, have mm-hmm. you ever struggled with that about uh, people expecting you to write a certain way or a certain thing? And, and how do you overcome the, the sense that you have to listen to those? Cause you don't, I mean, becoming an artist and, and developing your unique style, is it all about ignoring that while also taking what could be good advice too? So, so how do you navigate that? Um, the, you know, those voices that, that might be telling you no or trying to make you do a certain things in a certain way. You know, I think the loudest voice is your own. It's that self-critic that tells you, oh, whatever I've just said isn't worth saying. Or don't, you know, edit this, revise it, don't write it. That's always the loudest voice. And that's the one we have to silence first and just put it on the page. You can figure out what you're going to do with it later. Maybe it is terrible, but maybe from that terrible thing, you're going to get a gem. Um, And I've always really tried to find my readers and that, you know, in terms of writing community, um, both within my peers and within my teachers. And those are the people who are listening, not to what they want out of a poem and the kind of poem they want, but who are listening to my poem, to what my poem wants to do. And that's a very, you know, different thing 
because I've had lots of teachers who have tried to make my poems what they want in a poem. I had a teacher read a 12 page sequence that's, you know, central to my book, The Many Names for Mother, and tell me that line, lemons cut in perfect circles on a gold rimmed plate. Do more of that. Hmm. And that was his comment for all of the 12 pages. And so I knew he wasn't my reader. Yeah. If that is what you're looking for, that is not my reader. But the teachers who have told me, oh, you're writing about your great grandmother again. Yeah, do it. Keep doing it. Keep writing. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if we're driven to write about the same thing over and over again, there's a reason. Um, And that might mean we haven't found the right form yet. That might mean we haven't actually sung the song. We haven't told the story. We haven't done it justice yet. And maybe we never will. Some writers spend their whole lives circling around the same obsession, uh, trying to get as close to it as possible. Um, I think that's for me why I also now turn to writing some nonfiction is that I'm just still trying. I'm trying always to find ways in and out of the story and of the song. Um, so that would be my biggest piece of advice is to silence that inner critic and silence anyone that's not listening to what's happening on the page and that's looking for what they want out of it. Yeah, it's so interesting to me. That's why I love um, Ian McGilchrist and his idea, his his books about the, the bifurcated brain and the way that we're really two minds. And, and uh, you know, what we're really trying to do when we have an obsession is where the right holistic brain is trying to tell us something, you know, that we haven't been able to articulate. And if it takes, you know, obsessing over something for all through an entire book to come to that conclusion, um, that's the message that we're trying to get to um, and, and sort of put into a concrete form that makes sense and we can hold and carry with us. And that's what all art really is. And, and so um, that's why I think, you know, right toward your obsession is such great advice. Uh, and the other thing I was thinking, too, as you're talking is that in a writing workshop, um, I think that you, you have to sort of be, and, and this is important for everybody to know, because everybody ends up in writing workshops all the time, even if they're just doing the critique of the week, that the main thing that you have to take away is like what advice to listen and what advice to ignore, because there's so much that you have to ignore. And I've seen so many poems where, um, you know, I, I'll write to the person, which I do so much less now that we get 30, you know, 300,000 poems a year. But back when I used to do more of like, you know, this section was great, but this was like, you know, something feels off here. It would so often be that like, yeah, that's the section I revised. And I was like, well, let me see the original. <laughs> and then, you, you know, you'd see the original and it was it was the same voice that sort of sung the same song and they'd ruined it by workshopping. It. And that happens so much. So so knowing what advice not to listen to is such an important thing, um, while also knowing that some advice is good. So there's a real difficult balance to, to confront as um, as a writer as you're approaching that that kind of environment. Um, And also that brings us to save all of your drafts. People now with the computer, right? Just change it. But then you don't know where you started. So mm -hmm. it's so important to save kind of that first breath as it comes out of you. Even if you end up chopping it up and cutting so much out of it, you want those drafts to go back to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely great advice too. Um, Still talking about, I want to get back to poems, but but it's sort of on topic of of how you write in your process. Um, Dick Westheimer, who is a runner too, I know you're a runner because I've seen you like with marathon photos and stuff on Facebook. Um, But he asked, do you write while you run? And I think think if I'm thinking of um, (laughs) the right story, it might be, I might get this totally wrong, but I think somebody told me that Gregory Orr 
is a jogger too and that he writes with a big notebook in his back po- or runs with a big notebook in his pocket and actually like pulls out and like writes while running and doesn't really stop and then keeps going when he has ideas um, wow. I think it was um yeah I think I think that's <laughs> what I'm thinking of it hopefully I, I'm not wrong about that but anyway do you do anything like that as, as a writing part of your writing process is it like a meditative space and does that have anything to do with generating poems it does. But for me, writing is my way of turning my brain off. Hmm. That is why I do distance because it's like those first five miles, you know, like this morning I did a really quick two miles. Ugh, that wasn't enough to get me out of my head. Um, that's why I started training for like distance runs because by mile six, seven, eight. Yeah. Your body's hurting enough that your brain's turned off. Um, so my right or my running is in order to like clear my head so that I can write. That said, there are times when I get lines in my head when I'm running. I was, I was, I still haven't written this poem, but I was, when I was marathon training last year uh, here in Arkansas, I saw a um, Azure, but no, a, a cerulean bunting. That's what it's called. It's a cerulean bunting. And it's this bird that seemed like it came out of the tropics. I mean, the color of that like cerulean blue is unreal. Um, and and I had to stop and I pulled out my phone and I spoke into it. I often, if I'm walking, I will write and I will speak into the phone. I find that feature is really helpful in catching a different music, a different cadence. Um, some of the poems in 40 Weeks were written, spoken into my phone while walking, pushing a stroller <laughs> and just speaking into the phone. Um, so both yes and no. It's critical to my writing process and that it clears my head um, and de-stresses me. And then, yeah, sometimes poems do come to me, but never going to run with a notebook. We got the phone now. I'm just going to put it in one of my, you know, hundreds of draft emails of started poems that are unfinished. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a, you, you uh, slipped and said um, writing turns your brain off and, and you meant running at the beginning, yeah. which raises a really interesting <laughs> question. I wonder if that was um, um, sort of, you know, your, your, what you didn't know you knew speaking. Does, does writing turn your brain off, too? Is that part of the process? Because it feels like that, that for me, in a way, you're turning off one section of your brain anyway. And then the difficulty of getting into that writing space is like, how do you turn off that section that just wants to regurgitate garbage, I guess you could say. Possibly. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, a, a very uh, necessary Freudian slip in that writing lets me surrender my brain. Mm. It doesn't turn it off, but I surrender to it. I surrender to its kind of free flowing. And running detaches me from the brain and puts all the emphasis in my body. So, But writing sometimes detaches me from my body. So there's a really interesting kind of mind-body dynamic um, that's that's different in those two acts. And yet what I find is really critical about kind of being a person that focuses on any kind of uh, physical activity as well as creative is that it helps me stay vigilant in my creative process. Because I know that if I haven't run in a week and then I go to a run, that run's going to be really challenging. Same with writing. If I haven't written in a week or two weeks, that first time sitting down, you're rusty. So writing is also a kind of exercise, a kind of muscle building. That's why I compose so frequently, because even if what I write is bad, the ek bad, quote unquote, the exercise of my brain uh, doing this act, surrendering to the act of writing is 
you know, strengthening and building and will set me up to write a stronger poem next time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just great advice overall. And, uh, and, and people are saying that in the comments. Um, but let's I want I want to make sure we get through enough, you know, a good number of poems. Let's do another poem. Um, I think you had uh, Lime is next. Is that the one you want? Yeah. So we'll go to Lime because it's the way in which this right this book, as I said, is um, minimally, uh, engaged with its Jewishness. But in Lime, it was a poem that deals directly with the Holocaust without me thinking that's where I was going to go, but it, it, it took me there. Week 12, Lime. The face looks unquestionably human, the update tells you. Eyes have moved from sides to front of the head, ears right where they should be, and you wander your fingers along their possibilities, wondering what human means. They say inhuman for the centuries your ancestors were cut from bellies, their ears hung around men's necks, their eyes backed into the skull or swallowed whole so gold would grow inside another's gut or else they were burned so no man could taste such wealth. Inhuman for the women sewn back to back by men, their bellies growing away, so when they pushed, they'd show what potty part tears first, the stitch or skin. Inhuman for a man taking you without consent for all the taken women. But what's more human than such violation? From Latin, humanus, of man, how can your unborn child unquestionably come from this? Yeah, and that was uh, week 12, Lime, again from 40 Weeks by Yes, Yes Books, the newest from Julia Kolchinsky-Dasbach. Um, so that, that question of, um, of, of why, um, you know, why have children? It seems to me there's the question, and there are two that mirrors that is why write poems? Um, you know, in the face of so much suffering, in the way that you know a poem doesn't really change the world, um, why write? Like, what is the motivation to write? Like, why write anyway? And in, in, in the face of inhumanity, and in the face of um, sort of the the indignity that poems face as well, you know, because it's no one's gonna you're not gonna sell thousands of copies of this book. You know that going in. Um, so, so why why poetry? I think the answer. It's a lovely way to parallel those two questions, and I think the answer is the same: survival. Hmm. For me, it's my way to survive the day. It's my way to survive the week. And it's my way to leave something that survives beyond me. Um, and I don't mean that as like, oh, I'm going to be read when I'm dead. But it's more that it moves, the way poems move about the world is so magical that you put something out and then someone reads it and is changed by it. So I don't know, Tim, I don't know if I agree with you that poems don't change the world. I think they do. I really think they do. I think they sometimes on a small scale, but sometimes on a large scale, like those, you know, few poems that I've published on Poets Respond have raised such awareness for something that's going on. People who had no idea what was going on in Ukraine, despite it being in the news, they've raised lots of money for aid organizations. Um, 
So I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I'm a big believer that poems do change the world. Maybe it's naive, but that's part of why I write, because I want them to change the large world or the small world. Like I want a mom, you know, or someone who's experiencing that to hold this book and read it and feel seen um, and feel less alone in the doubts and the questions and the bodily grossness that this book really um explores and explores openly and says stop making this a taboo like this is what happens with our body <laughs> like 50 percent of humans uh experience this and a hundred percent of humans have come out of a body 100 percent of them so everyone has some connection to pregnancy and childbirth mm-hmm. whether personally or you know having having been born of a body yeah, well, that's a great answer. I feel a little guilty because it was a sort of a, a loaded <laughs> fake question. Because of course, I think poetry, um, you know, has value and changes the world. It's how we make meaning. Uh, you know, it's how we create meaning out of the complexity of life. And and you know, even if um, you know, you don't sell thousands of copies of the book, it doesn't matter because we're creating like human existence. You know, by the minute, and you know, we're doing that every time we say a metaphor spontaneously that makes us helps us make sense of the complexity of, of existence but then as poets are writing that down and recording it and sharing it in a way that you don't do you know you know when you're casually riffing off a metaphor or something like that and so we're, <laughs> we're creating we're creating existence itself <laughs> through words in, in poetry Absolutely. and so of course i think so but uh, but i have to set it up that way um, <laughs> um right marianne moore poetry i too dislike it yeah, exactly. right mm-hmm. there must be more beyond all this fiddle mm-hmm. yeah exactly and then, and then she fiddles for mm. all the stanzas. So, absolutely. <laughs> well, I want to, there's, uh, if you have any questions, there's a couple questions up, but if you have any questions for Julia, we have a little bit more time. Um, so leave them in the chat window, either on Facebook or YouTube, uh, and I'll pass them along. But I want to make sure we get to a few more poems. So let's do another poem. Um, all right. Let's do Rutabaga, since people seemed very interested in all of the colons. Um, Rutabaga is uh, week 25 Rutabaga, and it's kind of like the, I would say, the central, like, the center poem of the collection. Week 25, Rutabaga. Stretch marks run in the family. Looking down at your growing, purpling stomach, you see your mother's pinkish-gray ladder rungs. No one's fingers would willingly climb. Cracks in polar ice, streaks of soapy water dried on shower glass, riverbeds raw, After a drought, a gathering of dimming stars ripple where your son's nails slid your shoulder blade. You love my imperfections, you say, the stria rising from your pelvis, pale stitches where you were never cut or sewn back together, where you expanded then contracted down a balloon or bulbs or supernova, a body you are still in awe of. A pregnant body changes more in nine months than most in their whole lifetime. Her uterus amasses 20 times its weight. Her blood turns darker blue, skin flays without breaking, rivers and rivers on her belly. It's bigger. Your son digs his elbow in to make a valley, apologizes to the flesh. I love your belly, he says, sees the marks, kisses anyways, takes his palm and ear to them. They're all your perfections, 
your husband tells you, and you look up where perfect comes from. Etymology easier to bear than skin. From Middle English and Old French, parfait, finished, complete, brought to full development. But there are still so many rivers to grow, so many months to look more like your mother, to fight your body's generational becoming perfect. The tense, a retrospective present, connects a past occurrence with a current one. Your stomach, a cosmos, constellations only beginning to glow, though its stars must have died long ago, rivers and rivers, for their light to trail down a mother's skin. Yeah, another beautiful poem that was week 25, Rutabaga, and like you said, a central poem to the collection. Um, so I love that style. There's a, there's such a there's a great rhythm and there's the way it works. But I also love that it's not every poem. I think that if you wrote every poem that way, it would become too much or too gimmicky or something. So it feels like the perfect amount um, in a way that I'm not sure if you. It seems to me like it'd be hard to to consciously construct that as you're going through week by week in the book. So so, can you talk a little bit about how the book came to be as a book? And 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 two, just we mentioned how many every every book you win has won some award, and that's why it's being published where it is pretty much. Um, and can you talk about the, like the process of of going through that publication and, and making a book and getting out in the world, which is so difficult. So many people have a book they want to get out. Um, is there a lot of revision process in the book? Like, did you have more of a certain kind of poem? And then you, you change them around to f- make a like, how did the book become constructed? So I have to say this book is a fluke, a, a fluke in that the other two books were so constructed and so revised. And I remember mentioning my first book, you know, it took me five years to get it published. And then the second two were picked up within a week of one another. Oh, wow. Um, but this book um I didn't know I was writing a book. I just knew I was writing a poem a week to stay sane. <laughs> and um, Yes, Yes has this wonderful Pamet River Prize. And it's through nomination. So you can nominate your own work or someone else can nominate you. And the poet Kelly Grace Thomas, who won the Rattle Metaphor Prize way back, um, she had been reading these poems. And she said, Julia, I'm going to nominate this. And I was like, Kelly, I'm pregnant. I've written two thirds of the book. I don't, I don't know. How are you going to nominate it? She's like, you only need um, 20, 20 pages. So send me 20 pages. I'm going to nominate it. And I was like, all right, I guess I'll do it. I sent her the 20 pages I had. It was a finalist. And then I needed to submit the full book. So I delivered my daughter on June 19th and the book was due July 15th. And I pulled it together. I wrote the last poem of the book in the hospital room with my daughter at week 40. You know, I was writing it on my phone. Um, and so I have to say that this book really did go through minimal revision. The poems themselves I would come back to and massage. But I wanted this book to stay true to the immediacy of the experience. Yeah. And if a poem felt unfinished then that's what it meant to be. So, for example, in the book, you'll see I have um, week two, uh, or what are we, week two again, week three again. There's nothing written. It's like the, you know, and then week five and six, they don't exist. There's just, you know, sesame seed and lentil. They don't, they don't exist. And I wanted to stay true to that. And I, and I 
gave myself the freedom to do so. But somehow I pulled a poem out every other week from then on. Those are the only places. And I love that you ask about kind of the, the form because I really did let the weeks determine their own forms. So I have like a couple of split line poems in the book because that's what felt true to the week. Um, you know, more traditional couplets. I've got a counterpunctual in there where the poem can be read in multiple directions. I just let the weeks, you know, I let myself play. It was a book where I really let myself play with where that object, that fruit, that veggie took me, mm-hmm. um, whether it stayed with the fruit or veggie or whether it moved completely outside of it. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear because it, it reminds me of um, a line from a poem. I can't remember who's, unfortunately, but but someone says, um, you know, the flowers look so beautiful, they must be artificial. <laughs> and so it, it feels like so carefully choreographed in its like organicness that I thought you must have put a lot of thought into making it feel that way. So to hear that it's actually organic um, in the way, you know, because I love those breaks, you know, where you can you can sort of when you get to those poems where there's no poems, you can sort of feel like the exhaustion <laughs> in those weeks, you know, and then um and then and just like the emotional load and like there just couldn't be poems. But it feels like maybe, you know, that was planned. So it's really cool to, to hear that. No, that was just sincere exhaustion. And in fact, you know, my editor had very she was like, I've never had this few edits. Truly, it's so done. Um, and then there were a couple of poems, I think two of them, where she said this poem just isn't as strong as the rest. And I was like, yeah that that's what that week was Mm -hmm. and that's where I'm going to keep it. I mean, I, I like, I worked on some, but I really, again, wanted to stay true some weeks. That's all I had. And so I wanted that to be on the page Mm -hmm. as genuinely true to the experience. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, I do, I mean, it's a come up in time. You said we go, can you stay a little later so we can get the last couple of poems in too? (laughs) Yeah, not a problem. Yeah. So let's do, let's do the second to last poem and then I'll take the questions we had from, from the audience just now. And then we'll do the last poem too. So we get them all the ones you want to share in. Great. Um, so we're going to do cantaloupe and then I'm going to throw something in just for you that you haven't, I haven't done before, but I'm going to try it out because I haven't read it before. Um, so there's going to be some Russian singing that comes in and it's going to come in. So we'll see. You can let me know if you feel it works. If you feel like, eh, don't put it in. Okay. Week 34, cantaloupe. The first color they see is red. The second, a deeper still. Your son asks about blood, wants to see it rise to the surface. There are times you forget to flush. He sees traces, bites his tongue or the inside of his cheek while eating cantaloupe. Red streaks the fruit's flesh, rock melon, skin like the moon's. He asks why his mouth fills with pennies, copper. The shade of orange turns when mixed with blood. The taste of oxidization, too much air and rust. He asks you to kiss his tongue and inside where it hurts. Asks you to sing about hands because the other night you wept singing. And he was charmed, delighted even. By the startle of your crying. Why are you crying, Mama? 
и ты войдешь в распахнутые двери. You lied. It was a sad song. Said nothing of where you're hurting. Closed your eyes and sang in the womb-like dark of his bedroom about the man in love who begs the bells to ring again so the one he loves would return home and he would kiss her chapped red hands. Oh, that was gorgeous. And I, I think everybody is going to agree. Like you should, every time you read that poem, you should do the singing. That was great. Um, it really, really set the, the atmosphere, too. I love that. That was Cantaloupe, week 34, from um, 40 Weeks. Um, let's see. So back to the questions we had. Um, where was this? So, so Guy Chambers, I'm um, talking about, we were talking about revision before. And Guy want to know if you ever go back to your older poems and rewrite them. Is that something that you do as part of your revision process? Or do you sort of leave? But I feel like you can't step in the same river twice. I can never go back. And I just, I have to rewrite <laughs> it from scratch if it didn't work. But how do you, do you ever get back into a poem? I do. I rewrite quite a lot. Um, as I said, I do like 30 day grinds. And so I have them marked by the months. So like I'll have, you know, June of 2020 and I'll want to go back to June of 2020 and I will, I will step into that river, but maybe it's not even a river. When I step back into it, it's become an ocean or a lake, or maybe it's a puddle. That's really the thing. Maybe it was a puddle all along. Um, but yeah, I really, I really do. I love um, stepping back in. Um, I find that the more you write, the more challenging stepping back in actually gets because you have such an idea or a, a better idea of where you want something to go. And if it doesn't go there, then I might, eh, it, it didn't go. Um, but I do challenge myself to step back in, especially if like there's nothing you feel like, ah, I got nothing in me today. I pull out old poems um, and I see what I can get out of them. Maybe it'll just be a line. Sometimes I'll take the last line of a poem and use it as the first line of the next one. It's a really great exercise. Yeah, that, that is definitely great. And I, um, I have done, you know, I've, I've rewritten poems, you know, but I just haven't, I don't know. I just once they're they're too far gone, they're just like it's a different person who wrote them, you know. Um, yeah. So it's tough. It's always tough for me. Um, Dick Westheimer wants to know if you can see putting together a book of poems that are not thematic, which is a question. You know, we've talked about a few times on the Rattlecast that like you know, more and more books of poetry always have themes. It seems, and our chapbooks almost all, always have themes. Um, and and I think it's maybe part of the the contest model of poetry that it's much more easy. Um, to, to pick a poem and to market a book as a publisher when you can say, like, this is what it's about. So you can, like, think of the ways that, you know, who you would spread it to and how you would describe it. Um, did you think a theme is sort of vital to a book or not? Because I think I haven't read all your books. I've read two of the three uh, and they have both have strong themes. So is that something that you feel tied to with themes or, or not? I mean, I think a theme is vital to me as a poet. I don't know how I would write a book where they weren't connected um, I think everything I write to some extent has threads with everything else I write. Um, I mean, I could see maybe one day when I'm much older and I have a book of like, these are the poems that fit into nothing that I've put out <laughs> and it'll just be a kind of hodgepodge. Um, but I, but I even think in that hodgepodge, there would be like a reason why they didn't fit. And so then they would create a theme all their own or some kind of ligature, some kind of structure. Um, I think it's kind of 
for me as a writer, unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Um, another question. We'll just do kind of a lightning round here. Pater O'Donohue wants to know, is there any room for weakness, uncertainty, and self-deprecation in poetry? Absolutely. That's where <laughs> we begin. There's constantly room for self-deprecation. Um, and we begin there, but then I think we reach to rise out of it. Um, it's like the poem tries to silence that critic, even as it moves about, you know, the page or about the air. Yeah. But there's definitely room. And I think you should bring uncertainty and bring awareness onto the page. I tell my students this all the time when they're like, well, I couldn't write this because I didn't know. That's absolutely a reason to engage with that not knowing on the page, not a reason not to write it. <laughs> yeah, really well said, for sure. Um, and last one, uh, the, the question that guests hate, but everyone in the audience always loves, uh, putting <laughs> you on the spot for some favorite poets, um, maybe maybe poets we might not know that you could guide us toward that, uh, that, that you, you can point out. Ooh, poets you might not know. Okay, let's 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 lead you to some poets you might not know. Um, you should all read Luisa Muradian, who, if you don't know, she's amazing. I actually, you published her uh, Prince poem hmm, uh, yeah. in Poets Respond one time. Um, amazing Ukrainian uh, Jewish poet whose work I adore and is so funny. I just admire poets who can be funny because I can't. Yeah, it's like, tough. To... Love, <laughs> but not on the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some uh, Ukrainian poets, Ia Kiva is fantastic, um, and there's translations of her work. Um, and then I would love to just champion some like books that have come out this month because they're so good. Um, Jessica Q. Stark's Buffalo Girl, I just got in the mail, is so good. Uh, Katie Ferris's Standing in the Forest While Being Alive is incredible. Eugenia Lee's Bianca, they're just so good, and they all just came out. So I will, I will rather than favorite poets, because I have so many, these are just poets with books that are fresh and hot off the presses. And my pressmate, um, Allison Blevins' book, um, Cataloging Pain, also, I mean, highly recommend. Oh, very cool. I didn't know Eugenia Lee had a new book. She was the guest last year or two ago. Maybe have her back for a short segment to share that. Yeah, for sure. Oh, Bianca's fantastic, out from four-way. Yeah, very yeah. cool. Okay, well, uh, let's finish up with one with that last poem you had uh, on the list and to unfortunately close out the interview because it's been a great one. Uh, so much great advice and, uh, and digging into what poetry really is. I love it. So this will just answer your question, right, Tim? Or, you know, quite raise more questions. Uh, Why have children when the world is ending? Killer whales have stopped reproducing. Polar bears are eating their cubs. Koalas abandon their young, breathless, nose low to the brush to keep from choking on rising smoke. They run towards the thousands. Pounds of food we airdropped where earth stopped burning or Flames just hadn't reached yet. Guilt for our part in this end, or fear it would come for us the same. We tell ourselves everything just wants to survive. Believe in life as circle, not line. In karma, if it means our endurance. We spread stories about wombats herding animals into their burrows, kangaroos hugging their rescuers, or foxes feeding baby bears. 
uncharred candy milk. But animals know to rely on no one. Their own scathed hides and carcasses pile the roadside along bus routes to the local preschool. The children we chose to have must fight, gagging at the smell. My infant daughter screams at us for plugging the bulb syringe deep into her nostril. She exhales snot mixed with my milk, screams again, then sleeps. She doesn't know we've made this quiet possible. She turns her head away where breathing comes easiest and reaches for a warm body as soon as she can smell it close. She doesn't know the coral reefs are dead and sargassum reeks in mounds along Caribbean coastline, starfish suffocated under its spreading. And maybe this is why we've made her, because she doesn't know survival is in our hands, forgives us their indiscretions and lets us hold her body as though it were a world we could still save. And that was Why Have Children When the World is Ending, uh, the closing poem to uh, 40 Weeks by Julia uh, Kochinski-Dasbach. Julia, thanks so much for being a guest. It was definitely worth waiting an extra two days for. Sorry for everybody who had to wait. <laughs> but uh, but a wonder, wonderful show. Um, love the discussion. Your poems are so good. Um, thanks, uh, thanks for being here, and congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. And if you order it, please leave reviews on Amazon and Goodreads because it makes a huge difference for, you know, us small potato poets. Um, and it's coming out next week. So if you pre-ordered it, you should be getting it next week. Excellent. Yeah, well, I hope a lot of people did. Uh, thanks, Julia. Once again, it's been great. Thank you. And that was Julia Kolchinski-Dasbach. And once again, her book um, is right here, 40 Weeks. And look at this beautiful cover one more time. Um, uh, 40 weeks that just yes yes books did an amazing job of this i love love the look of it and um and throughout the book too it's really wonderfully produced uh excellent book of poetry uh you can find more of julia's work at her website which is julia kolchinski dasbach that's uh cool. it's kind of how it sounds julia kolchinski is k-o-l-c-h-i-n-s-k-y dasbach is d-a-s-b-a-c-h Julia Kolchinski Dasbach.com. Find her website, find the book there or through Yes Yes Books. Um, and you won't, uh, you won't be disappointed if you get a copy. So um, we're going to go to a quick, take a quick break and go to open lines. And um, as I mentioned, if you're, if you're new and you, know, you don't usually watch at this time, this is your chance to shine on the open lines. You can share any kind of poems that you would like. You can share poems about current events. You can share poems from the prompt last week. You can share poems that were published recently, something you wrote today. Whatever you'd like to share, here's how you do it. I'm going to put it up on the uh, screen here. Email your poem first to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. That way I can show the poem on screen as you read it, and everybody who's watching on the stream gets to appreciate it. Then come on over to the... Um, Zoom, and I'm going to post the link into Facebook and into YouTube. Um, only jump over if you'd like to share a poem. Um, if you just want to listen and enjoy all the open mic poems, which you, I highly recommend, you can just stay right where you are, either on Facebook or YouTube. Um, but if you want to join the Zoom and share a poem, um, jump on over and shut down your stream so you're only watching through Zoom while you're until you do your poem because that way there won't be two delays and then you'll get all confused uh, with the, you know that that whole thing. So just to, and you'll have the most bandwidth possible too. So so if you want to come over, just come on over on Zoom. Here is the link and I will be back in just a moment 
with uh, with the open lines. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, like I said, uh, you can write poems about the prompt if you like to share on the open lines. And the prompt for this week was the following. Um, write an ekphrastic poem about a recent image in your camera roll. And, um, and so I had, um, I was in New York City with Katie Dozier for the NFT NYC conference. And we sort of went around to some of the parks. One of the parks we went to was this beautiful... Uh, uh, the, the cherry blossoms were blossoming in um, Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And so this is the photo I was looking at. We also had a prompt, or, or I also had a, a sort of dual prompt, because when I was flying back on the plane, I asked some people for prompts. I wrote four poems on the plane, which is nice. Two of them actually came out of um, images from my camera roll, too. So maybe I'll sh- I could share the other one, too, if we have time. But this one was written about Prospect Park and, and coming to Prospect Park. Um, and the funny thing is... Um, with Katie, we were we were in. It's a huge park, and every time we try to leave, there is just more park, and we just kept getting lost. So, so her prompt was to um, write about the park you can never leave, because the Prospect Park ended up being the park we could never leave. So here's the prompt written on the plane, based on that photo and uh, and the and the prompt. So here we go. Typical day. They turned a corner, climbed some concrete stairs, and there it was, the park they'd never leave. It rose from the hill like a dream. There were people in frisbees. A dog chased a ball off its leash. The blossoms were blooming. The bees wove their way through the weeds. It had been quite the journey to get there. All the trains and the transfers, the tokens and turnstiles, the numbers and letters, the red and the blue and the green. Their feet were sore from the walking. Their shoulders were pink from the sun. It was a typical park from a distance, but they knew that it was the one. This typical day. And actually, I um, I say I never write by hand, but but I have... Uh, actually handwritten poems here, which I never, which I never do. But the, there was no Wi-Fi in the plane, and apparently Chromebooks don't work without Wi-Fi. There's, like, nothing you can do. Anyway, that was my prompt poem. I'll, if we have time, I'll do the other one. We have 10 people on the, um, uh, on the Zoom right now. So um, let's go to Katie Dozier first, since we were just talking about Katie. Okay, Katie, are you there? The National Gallery of Art, so I might be annoying people. <laughs> well, that's all right. Yeah, so you went down to, after I left New York City, you went down to Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. So you're at the National Gallery there. Um, and, yes. But we had a great time. So I wanted to mention, we had a great time at the NFT, NFT NYC conference. There's a panel um, of NFT poets that we were on because the summer issue of Rattle is going to feature um, NFT poets. So we have a dozen poets in that issue. Four of them originally were scheduled to be on the panel. We ended up with three because someone couldn't make it. But um, it was really interesting. Do you have any like general thoughts about, about how the conference went and, and what you learned or anything? Well, first, comparing it to the NFT NYC that was in London last fall, like there was so much more of a literary presence, which was really exciting to see. You know, I think before the the panel that I was on in London was like, I think one of the absolute only one about, you know, publishing and and words and spoken words. So it was really exciting to see like way more panels going on. And then people actually came to our 
panel about poetry. And that was interesting too. And, and a journalist for Voice of America came up after too. And we're there's gonna be a segment about that as well, which is really interesting. Um, so it did, it did, it was a really interesting panel. And uh, people uh, still probably are confused about what NFTs are and what we're, you know, what what's going on with them and, and how that has to do with poetry. But the summer issue, all I want to do is plug the summer issue of Rattle, basically. it's I'm putting it together right now. <laughs> It'll be out June 1st with a, a dozen NFT poets and an interview with Sasha Styles, where we try to explain it all. And so that should be fun. But but you shared, uh, you you sent me a link to an NFT poem, a poem that's, that's up as an NFT on a foundation. Yeah. Uh, so this is your uh, open mic poem for today, but anything you can say about it before you, you read? Well, first of all, what's funny about it is that I'm going to be reading it from a piece of paper. <laughs> so <laughs> irony, yeah. It's being an NFT. There's a little bit of irony. But this actually came from a prompt from you. And it tied into what you and Julia were talking about somewhat, which is, you know, your favorite poets. And I think one of the prompts a while ago was that. And I re-entered this poem in terms of I turned it into an NFT and it added photography to it, too. So into that as well so excuse the piece of paper because i don't know how to technically work it with my phone and gadgets and art and i have to say the interview was so good it pulled me away from all the picassos i was looking at like i just sit down to focus well, that's <laughs> good thing. hopefully the hopefully the museum's open for a while so you can go, go back and enjoy them hopefully too. it is and hopefully they don't kick me out mid poem we'll see <laughs> okay well good luck <laughs> and let's hear it all right flowers for my favorite poet it's without the energy to wave away the rain, grabbing <laughs> a chewed-up pencil, too shy for the permanence of pins. This park shakes out strangers like the leaves while turning barren trees. He scribbles on a legal pad, jettisoned with raindrops. He writes towards what he cannot reach, wedged between the highest branches of an oak. He tosses aside an umbrella like an analogy in the pursuit of what is instead of what it's like. It started as a bench tycoon and bloomed into a sonnet. The crown spouted from blunt lead, but he crumpled it up instead. Yeah, so, uh, hoping that. people don't crumple up their poems, <laughs> put them out there. And yeah. I have to say that one party we read poems yeah, that was yeah. so crazy with the <laughs> NFT wildness going on. Flowers <laughs> made this very easy. <laughs> because <laughs> the chaos going on, I don't care. So mainly, I'm just I'm about to write a poem about people taking selfies, like thinking nobody's watching them take selfies right in front of the rotunda. It's very entertaining. That's really That's fun. Entertaining. Well, and enjoy and, <laughs> and hope you write a bunch of poems today. I should say, too, that Katie and I do the Poetry Space on Twitter every Thursday at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern. Tomorrow, we're going to be doing that talking about uh, National Poetry Month, which I to uh, which I hate. <laughs> so we'll talk and about it. And I love. And Katie loves. So we'll, we'll disagree about it. I'm sure most people like it, but, but I'm not a fan. But we'll talk about why on the Poetry Space tomorrow, which is another podcast that we do. But thanks, Katie. Good to see you and, and continue enjoying those Picassos. Thanks so much. Thanks for the great show. Yep. Take care. Bye. Yeah, that was Katie Dozier with a Flowers for My Favorite Poet. Um, next, let's go to um, Audrey Friedman. Audrey Friedman. Here I am. Hey, Audrey. How are you doing today? Good. I didn't even realize you were doing an earlier one. And I get a notification on my phone. So here I am. Well, that's perfect. I'm glad it works. Yeah, what happened is uh, I had no internet on Monday night or all day Monday. And so and it didn't come on until after the show would have ended. So I had to postpone. And this was the time that worked for Julia. So uh, so that's when we did it, and it's it's nice. We get to have some different people. I already see some new people on the open lines. We'll get to the new callers next. I always like to do a couple veterans first, so that the new people can see how it works. But uh, <laughs> but so so yeah, have your poem ready when I call when it, it's your turn. Unmute yourself, and then uh, you got to read from your own piece of paper. Uh, but here, Audrey, so what do you have for us? Okay, so I did the prompt, 
And this was a, a photo that was on my phone. And uh, here we go. A Congress of Old Oaks convenes to continue their centuries-old debates, considering the state of things. Of what do they speak? Of whom? They are skirted by purple pansies and pink peonies that look up reverently as the conversation continues leaves speaking in the South Carolina spring breeze. Sunshine burnishes each leaf, each a word of the dialogue. Of what do they speak? Of whom? If only we could transplant ourselves as saplings, we might learn the language of the sages, grow in a cluster of wildflowers, gain the wisdom of the grove of barked witnesses. Oh, that was beautiful. Thanks for sharing that, Audrey. Is it Congress of Old Oaks? Is that the collective noun for it, or did you make that up? I I totally made it up. <laughs> That's great. I love that. A Congress of Old Oaks. Really perfect. And um, and I love that uh, con- they're considering the state of things. That was really cool. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. And for those who uh, who can't see, you know, who are just listening, it's a it's a photo of a park with a, with old oaks um, and some paths and things like that. So I have to describe the pictures for uh, for the podcast listeners. Okay, let's go next to um, some first time callers, and um, I think Barry Casey hasn't been on before. So Barry, just unmute yourself, and then you have to have the poem. You can't read it off the screen because uh, there's the delay. So hey, Barry, how you doing? Good, thanks. My first time here. Yeah, excellent. I'm so glad to have you uh, on the show. Where are you calling from? Uh, Burtonsville, Maryland. It's just outside of Washington, D.C. Excellent. And I'm trying to find the poem. Oh, there it is. I see it. Junkyard. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Oh, but the poem's not included. Oh, it's not? Yeah, it's not in the email. Um, oh, dang. Yeah. Why don't we, why don't oh, we swing back to you? You can email it to me so people can see it, too. And I'll just come back to you. Can you email it to me now? I'll try, yeah. Okay, Just sure. Just go ahead and I'll, I'll come back. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, yeah, we'll swing back to you. Let's go to another first-time caller then, um, Susan Edison instead. Hey, Susan. Hi. Or Suzanne, sorry. It's Suzanne Dan. Edison. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I sent you two poems, but I think I'm going to read the spells, uh, spells and Prayers before Antimatter. Do you have that one? Yeah, I have that right here. And where are you calling from, first of all? I love. Oh, I'm from Seattle, Washington. Ah, perfect. Yeah, well, so good could call in. Yeah. Is this time better for you than the regular time? Is that the issue or just oh, happened no, to be here? Oh, no, every time was, the other time was actually better, but um, but I love Julia's work, so ah, I wanted perfect. to. Okay, well, I'm and so I, glad And I had another call, this. but I had to, you know, anyway, rearranging <laughs> work life. So. Okay, and so, um, so what, uh, is there anything you want to say about this poem before you read it? Um, it just came out in um, Mom Egg Review or Murr, um, their folio online, and um, it, because you mentioned uh, ekphrastic, I thought I would I would take this one. Ah, oh, excellent. Okay, so, well, let's hear it. Yeah. Okay. Spells and prayers before antimatter. Step with me into O'Keefe's painting of a ram's skull, its curvaceous horns. Let it invite travel. Behold the spirals. When a woman says, I'm speaking, hear not a gavel pounding or a hard cell, but a hundred doors unhinging. 
Do not check the floor for blood. She will have bandaged her wounds every step of the way. Imagine yourself protoplasm, fur, feathers, scales, carapace, all of us carbon afterprints. Imagine your body seated and shaken like a shakir, and footfall a score resounding, not safe, not safe, 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 safe. Say despair for the elephants, Amazon forests, and bees, and future generations is the ground we plow. That pain is only one source code, and hope a pole we drop and recoup walking through our tightrope lives. Let the crab nebula become our ecumenical study. We are born of stellar light winds, light years old. Who knows where our atoms began? Who knows what they will become? Let us not cast words as junk bonds or scrims for our hearts. Do not say love conquers all as if it's a war zone. Let it spread like mycelium, sporing underground, like when we soothe our babies half awake at night. And let dancing be my legacy beyond what makes sense. Even an eyelash can flutter. Say smell is truer than sight and remember touch is the first sense. Let me and you then fingertip to fingertip ignite. Oh, beautiful poem. Very rich in image and, and metaphor. Thanks so much for sharing that. Spells and Prayers Before Antimatter uh, by Suzanne Edison. Thanks, Suzanne. And where, where again was it curated uh, recently? Mer, M-E-R, mm-hmm. online, folio online. Mer folio. Mm-hmm. And I think it's volume 21. Yeah. Yeah, let me let me tell you that. Mer folio. Yeah. Oh, from um, Mama Mother's That's Respond. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, a mother's response. Okay, so here we go. Just, I like showing off other literary magazines and things. So this is uh, at com, uh, which is Motherhood Literature and Art. And then this is the Mother's Respond feature. So check that out um, with all these wonderful poets that you see on screen. Thanks so much for sharing that and, and being here, Suzanne. Thank you. Yep. Have a good day. Yeah, excellent. So let's go to another first-time caller. And um, Susan um, Coronel is here. Hi, it's great to be here. Hey, um, yeah, where are you calling from, Susan? Um, I'm in Queens, New York, New York City. Yeah, and so uh, what do you have that you would like to share? Uh, the poem I'm going to read is called My Younger Daughter Resists Tradition, and it appeared in um, the most recent issue of Passenger's Journal. Ah, excellent. My Younger Daughter Resists Tradition. Anything you want to say about it before you jump in? Or? Um, I think it just it kind of fits in maybe with the uh, the theme of uprootedness and, and Jewish heritage. Yeah. That's with Julia. Perfect. Well, let's hear it. Go ahead. My younger daughter resists tradition. She tells me one day, I don't want to take Yiddish classes anymore. And Fiddler on the Roof, the youngest daughter, insists on leaving the fold because of true love. But to her father, she's a splinter and a cantaloupe, untethered from tradition and from every family who has ever said, stay, follow, without doing it themselves. True love. A violin shivers naked, trills on a hill, attempting to play a familiar tune but the music escapes through holes and pockets, beguiles even those with the best intentions, singing, look what you've done. Loss is a bone caught in the throat, a sewing needle threaded, not once, but in both directions. The only Jewish tradition left for my daughter is food, 
matzo ball soup, chocolate coins, herring drowning, and sweet onions and cream. What she does not know is that I am trying to keep my balance on a roof, whose shingles, shingles dangle like warped leaves. There are no prayers of devotion, but reams of remorse, the repeated desecration of our culture through history, confirming that we still sit on rotten hands. I care nothing for the temple, empty rituals opening like a can of preserved peaches, but yearn for the parsley sprig, for the star of David to be twisted and reimagined so my children will not lose what came before without knowing what they're losing, even as I know it's already lost forever. Love is sweet, but better with a bissel of salt, a kiss on the punum. Thieves and the dead I've loved, new darkness like a tattered coat. Children always refuse, but it's still better to ask them to carry something than to come to the table of the future empty-handed. Yeah, lovely poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. I love that line, uh, loss is a bone caught in the throat. That's really great. Uh, thanks for sharing that and for joining us. Hope you can share more poems in the future. Um, yeah, that was um, Susan. Um, is it Susan uh, Mitchell or Susan Coronel? Because the email. Oh, Susan Michelle Coronel. Su oh, Susan Michelle Coronel. Okay, gotcha. Susan Michelle Coronel. Thanks so much for sharing that, Susan. It's great to have you on. Um, yeah, and the poem, of course, was uh, My Younger Daughter Resists Tradition. Um, let's see. Oh, so we have uh, Barry's. We got the poem here. I'm going to attach this time. So let's go back to Barry. Okay. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah. Yeah. And I got the poem here, Junkyard, too. Is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? Yeah. Um, I grew up in the hills above Napa Valley, California. Uh -huh. And uh, I was a campus kid. My grandparents taught at the college. And then my first year at college, um, a young girl was killed. Uh, in that in that area and the blame was put on a man called willie the woodcutter and uh, we went out 500 of us or more to search the area one day to try to find her body um so this is a poem about that oh wow junkyard we searched all day under the scornful sun through tough manzanita and scrub oaks, we pushed, casting our net for the dead girl. We'd been told Willie had dumped her body down the side of the hill off the old Howl Mountain Road, as twisted as a snake. I thought about what I would do if I found her. She'd be lying as if asleep under a bush, one arm stretched out, her head back, and her eyes blue as asters, open to the sky and filled with clouds, a soft puzzlement in them, as if she had awakened in a strange room after a long dream. And Willie? I remembered meeting him years before, when I was 10, and his junkyard yielded up a bicycle frame for $5. There you go, son, he said and smiled. He patted me on the head. There in the harsh California sun, his skin so black and his teeth so white, he could have been a wizard in a children's story of a kindly old man deep in the forest whose fenced-in yard contained the treasures of a lost kingdom. Oh, wow. Powerful poem. That was Junkyard. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that, Perry. Thank you. It was Barry Casey with Junkyard. Hope you can share another poem sometime soon. I will. Um, okay, next up, let's go to 
Let's go to Phil Stern. Phil hasn't been here in a while. Hey, Phil, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm great. Uh, is your um, your camera's not on? I don't think. If you'd like it to be. What should I do? Uh, well, you can turn your camera on if you'd like to be on video. But if not, that's fine too. Okay. Am I on now? Um, still not. Maybe it's the maybe it's like got a cover on it or something. I just see uh, black. No, it doesn't have a cover. Hmm. All right, let's do it without it. Okay. Well, well. Anyway, Phil, it was great to uh, to see you today because I uh, I met your son uh, in New York City too, Nathaniel um, Stern. No, he told me. Yeah, he's a great guy. I loved him. He's so authentic and creative at the same time, which uh, is a rare combination. I really liked him a lot. He read he read a poem at um, a very strange art gallery event with um, hosted by Food Mask You, who is a, a sort of a performance artist that uh, that has been all over like Newsweek and stuff for putting his meal on his face and then eating it. <laughs> and so um, so we had some of that, but we had a little poetry segment there. And, and Nathaniel read one of his poems, too. But he's been doing some great stuff in NFT poetry. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, he's uh, he's all over the place. He's so energetic. He gets so much stuff, you know. But he told me he enjoyed uh, meeting you and listening to you and Katie Reed. Yeah, well, it was cool to meet him. So, so what do you have uh, yourself to share okay. today? Uh, yeah. Uh, do you have the poem in front of you there? Or? I do. From New Verse, use myth information. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, I, you know, this discussion today about obsessions. I was myself wondering. It, it, you know, why I, the last couple of years, I've been obsessed with uh, using wordplay in a lot of my poems and uh, kind of a double vision, you know, I guess. And I, but, it, it, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's a way of confronting all the stuff that's going around. And uh, this is one of the poems. Um, I have others that are a little more, you know, heavy, but this one is kind of light. Anyway, the, the background, of course, is that this week, uh, uh, President Biden signed legislation uh, ending the uh, so-called uh, emergency for COVID-19. Oh, I didn't even know that. Okay, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the uh, poem's called Myth Information. Now the emergency is over. Caution and funding are over. But yesterday, one of our leaders went mything. He said it was a hoax, then said it would not blast, then sold equin and oquin and proposed bleach to the fringe bleacher seats at his attempt show. He watched as the wild virus burned, ungoverned, saw it sprinkle hot ashes on refrigerated COVID wagons circling hospitals where breathless bodies stiffened. Yet missed messages still burn about dangers of masking and vaccines that damage DNA still cause national disfusion. So do we now forget that we allowed over 1 million deaths to happen? Yeah, great poem. Thanks for sharing that, Phil. And and that's, of course, at Newverse News. I, lo- I always love seeing your uh, bio, too. Philip Stern is 95, had a poem published in The Atlantic in 1957, wrote pop songs <laughs> in the 60s, and started writing poetry again after retiring from college. That's just great. I um, always love it when you can join us, Phil. It's always a pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. And I enjoy attending when I can. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being here.
Okay. Yeah, that Thanks. was Phil Stern with Myth Information from um, from Newverse News, which is, of course, a great place to send your uh, Poets Respond poems. Um, f- send them to Rattle first, um, but then send them to there, because they publish a lot more uh, more poems than we do. Um, they do. I think they do a poem every day, if I remember right. Um, but you can yes. find that at newversenews.blogspot.com. So, um, okay. Well, let's go next to, uh, let's go back to, uh, let's go to Carla Schwartz next. And hopefully I didn't screw up Zoom because I, I was trying to make Phil, Phil show up. And I, I think I'm, let's see, Carla, are you there? <laughs> I'm here. Can you hear me? I can, but let me see. Um, let's see. There you go. I had to like I have to like manually switch everybody so they oh, show up oh, on okay. screen now. Cause I, okay, okay. Anyway, there you are. Hello, Carla. How are you doing? Hi. I'm good. I'm very good. I'm very good. I've been swimming in ponds and and um, I loved the interview today. And I'm and I actually was traveling, so I would have missed Monday night. And I'm so happy. <laughs> no, I'm, glad, I'm glad that worked out for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you have so, that you'd like to share? Um, I did a prompt poem, and. Um, the picture is at the end of the poem, mm-hmm. so you can show that first if okay. you want. Yep, I've got that up for you. So it's, we're okay. looking at, for those at home, we're looking, I think, cross-country skiing, I assume. So there's a woods, yes. and there's some it's patches a... of snow that, that some, some people have recently skied through. Right, right. And it's a trail that I make on my property and, and try to maintain. Ah, great. When there's snow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this is called uh, To My Ski Trail. You were my last... You were my final, my friend, my home, ensconced in pines, overshadowed by pines, imbued with pines. I'd pass through you, inhale the scent of pine. But as the days crept into March, as the days marched on, as the sun rose higher above the pines with each passing day, as I'd pass over and through with each loop on skis, as I'd take such joy of you, I whittled you down just a little more, especially around that shushing place where I'd ski the hill, glide into you. Now you lie there barely clothed, seductive, your narrow grooves slicked with wet while the bare ground encroaches, threatens to steal your breath. Knowing your days are numbered, you jostle for final pleasures, a a singeing heat, a kiss, a melting under sun. Yeah, that's great. And then uh, once again, there's that photograph of the ski tracks through uh, Carla's property. That's wonderful, Carla. Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, Carla Schwartz with To My Ski Trail. Yeah, thanks. Always a pleasure, Carla. Yeah. Um, Tim, are you actually projecting images on the screen because i'm not seeing any oh this is for i should say um for everybody who's who's new you can keep watching on the stream so the um um yeah so go back to uh, youtube or facebook wherever you're watching and you can see the poems uh um, where they were yeah okay um but yeah so just come over pop over on zoom how it works to share your poem and then you can go back to uh to where you're watching before uh and then get the full experience um so next up is nate jacob Hey, good day to you. Hey, how you doing, Nate? I'm all right. The, the uh, sun is shining through my windows. It so. looks like a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day here, too, finally. Finally, winter's over in the mountains here. Well, it snowed here yesterday. Oh, so. did it? Well, don't, I don't want to hear that word. <laughs> I don't either. I'm done. <laughs> hey, I, uh, I sent you an acrastic-type poem. Uh-huh. 
photograph of pancakes that yeah, I made last month. I got month. the pancakes right. Those are good-looking pancakes. You are a, uh, a, a pancake artisan. <laughs> that's, that's my first batch, even, and they turned out. So. Oh, that's great. Um, and then lately, I've been writing poetry uh, pre-morning, M-O-U-R-N, uh, my son, who's graduating from high school this year. Uh, well, congratulations to him. But yeah, that must be I haven't experienced that yet, but I can imagine what it's going to be like. You know, my daughter's, you know, getting so close to the driver's license age, and it's just like, whoa, what? <laughs> so I've uh, I've been writing off and on about, you know, putting myself into that time already. Uh, so the poem is called We Could Talk Over Pancakes. Enough about dream and misty memory. Enough about cobwebs of the mind. Enough, my God, with the meaning of it all. I slept hard into the creases of my pillow, left lines across my sweaty forehead, which you noticed, mentioned an hour later. And I did dream. I do remember it all. And I want to tell you about the details, about how I awoke not knowing where I was. But I have no stomach this morning for mining my dreams for meanings, which were never really intended for me. I was shirtless, lost again in my college dorm, searching for a slip of paper, my class list, or my room number. I don't remember dreams. My tooth was loose, and the bird was loud in the tree out the window where my bike had once been tied with a schoolboy knot. All of those things are meaningless, less and less each time I dream them, so much more often of late since Jack moved away. And I wake up sweating or crying aloud for him to eat his oatmeal. He hates it, hates oatmeal, hates my insistence that a proper breakfast is perfect oatmeal. He's gone now, barely able to afford cereal, eating it dry the way his mother does, with a spoon still, in a bowl still, properly like a well-raised child does things. God, I wish he'd come home for breakfast. I wish he'd tell me his dreams and fears. And together we could make some sense of every damn thing that makes no sense. Maybe that could be just dream enough. Maybe in the end, everything I dream now is just me making just enough sense of him. Yeah, beautiful poem is always neat. And yeah, that, that feeling is something that uh, is kind of new to me. It's hitting me. Like as I coach Little League and we went to um, Medieval Times on, uh, on Easter, <laughs> which is our Easter tradition. Um, so I took the kids there and, uh, my daughter was, uh, the, the, the queen, the princess, they named, like they crowned the winner crowned someone like the, and so she was crowned when she was like three or, or five and six, like two years in a row, they picked her as the princess. And so this time she's 12 now. And I was, as I was watching like a new little girl be crowned the princess, I was just like, you know, tears, you know, really like she's, you know, never yeah. going to be the princess of the medieval times again. And just the, the way that, you know, life moves so fast. It seems so recently that, you know, there's so little and then all of a sudden they're not, you know, it's sneaky. It, it really is. They sneak like, up. You know, good luck with it. Yeah. Well, thanks. You too, Nate. Good luck. And uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll be writing poems about it together. I'm sure. Thanks. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Take care. Yeah, Nate Jacob with, um, and um, we could talk over pancakes. I love that poem. Thanks, Nate. Um, next up, uh, let's go to Dick Westheimer. <clears throat> hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing today? 
Good. Some Zoom just made my whole Zoom disappear for a moment. I had to go and, and yeah, pull it some back. Weird, from... I've had a lot of weird technical issues. I don't know what, you know, maybe the Mercury's in retrograde or something. I don't know. But there's, um, we're still not, I can't figure out what's going on with Twitter. But, um, and then, you know, I had some YouTube or Zoom problems, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Twitter can figure out what's going on with Twitter. So you're, uh, you're yeah, not I have to confess. I think that that you know you and other people were right about it. I mean, this is it's ruined. <laughs> so yeah, it's too it's, bad because I only started using Twitter like a little while ago, and um, and it's just fallen apart. It's a shame. I mean, I found some workarounds to follow poets who I'm following and to avoid the you know the crazy violent videos that they try to feed me and stuff yeah, like that's that weird. i haven't seen any of that but i guess i don't really browse much so the one thing i do like is that the articles it shows articles that your friends of your friends have have shared or whatever i, I love that feature and so I, that's the only thing i use really on twitter well, but... I'll, have, I'll have to i'll have to look for that um, um i I just loved your interview with, I, I shouldn't call it an interview, because I think one of the things that I've identified that you do as is getting conversation with whomever you're, you know, it, it feels like a very mature sophomore in college conversation in a dorm room that you're oh, yeah. having with, with these poets. Well, that's so, the I perfect. Mean, yeah, that's the, that's the goal. You know, we've even in Rattle, even the old issues, we always called them conversations instead of interviews, because we want to have a a feel exactly like that. I think it's a great way to put it of maybe slightly stoned sometimes. <laughs> it's yeah. a good way to do it too. No, it, it, it really feels like a, like a, a conversation where, where each of you is, you know, I felt this way when I was in conversation with you, that it was just, you know, each, each of us enjoying the conversation. Yeah. So well, that, that's it really cool. felt like that with, with Julia. I really appreciate it. Yeah, um, well, thanks for saying that. So what what is it that you want to share this week? Um, first of all, the, Poems on open mic have been terrific. They They're have, just, yeah, yeah. Over, I mean, they just it gets better every mind. week. I think that's one of the things yeah. you know about about having the show go out and just people get better and better, and and the poems get better and better. Yeah, I hope the I hope the newcomers come back. That yeah, me too. Terrific. Um, so I'll read the Thomas Merton poem. Sure. Thomas Merton walks the Louisville streets after the last mass shooting, recent mass shooting, whatever it's it's called. You'll you'll see that I crossed off the title right before I sent it in because it was no longer the last mass shooting. Yeah, unfortunately, um, that's a, something that has to happen every, if, unless the poem is like an hour old. <laughs> it has to be crossed right. off. Right, yeah, yep. and even so. Uh, so just by way of background, if folks don't know Merton, uh, he was a uh, Trappist monk, pacifist, um, and mostly writing in the 50s and 60s, um, but a uh, uh, really interesting poet essayist um and uh at the corner of fourth and walnut in in um in louisville uh there's a plaque where he had his great revelation which i'll read here as part of the epigraph okay so um epigraph in louisville at the corner of fourth and walnut i was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that i loved all these people that they were mine and i theirs and i had no way of telling them that they were all walking around shining like the sun mm, that's beautiful um yeah and then from yates the blood dim tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned Thomas Merton walks the Louisville streets after a recent mass shooting. 
Merton heads north on 4th, filches a butt from a sand-filled ashtray, flicks it, uh, flicks it lit with a near-spent bick, drags it down to the filter. This is homeless Merton, wandering Merton, not the late Trappist monk Merton, but back from the dead, living now as every vagrant on every street corner in Louisville Merton, including Forth and Walnut, where every day he's telling people that they are all walking around, shining like the sun. He turns right on Maine, feels a calling to, a shouting from, and sees he's among men in tears and heaps on the ground, women comforting them, police in their armored blues, microphones, TV crews, shattered glass, the mayor. And then there's the blood, all that blood. Merton stares at the scene, whispers so everyone can hear, says, I am a minor god in this new church where ARs tear flesh and shatter bones. My rituals of innocence are drowned by this carnage. He walks under the highway to the riverbank, says his absolutions, testifies to the flowing Ohio with his tears, finds on the ground a picture, tips it on its side to see the hidden image of those now dead brought back to life. But no, nothing can raise the dead, can unshatter bones, can make the good God Merton believe. And he is the kind of God who exists when his faith is strong, when he believes in us. He hears the sound of dust settling around him. It resounds like gravel through an hourglass. He plugs his ears with his nicotine-stained fingers, but soon realizes he is the dust he hears. He is settling into a fine layer of nothing. He will be washed away by the river rising by his own tears. Yeah, another great poem, as always, Dick, that was Thomas Merton walks the Louisville streets after the last mass shooting. Love the ending. And, and that quote, too, which I'm not familiar with. I had never seen it before, but that had no way of telling people that they're all walking around shining like the sun. That's just such a beautiful you know, way to think about the world. Um, and it sounds like a wonderful person. I don't really know much about Thomas Merton, but I'm going to have to look more of that. Yeah. Up. Yeah. Check it. Check him out. And there is a plaque right at the corner of Fourth and Walnut mm-hmm. in Louisville, sort of like it, it's 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 a um, it's a pilgrimage place yeah. for some of us. So, well, yeah, definitely. Well, definitely have to learn more about him. Thanks so much for sharing that. Sure. Thanks, Tim. Take care. Bye bye. Yeah, it was Dick Westheimer once again. Let's see. And now, I think the last person we have who hasn't gone yet is a Nivedita. And I'm not sure. I'm trying to think of this as late at night now. Hey, Nivy, how are you doing today? Hey, Tim. I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you? Good. And so what time is it there um, in India? It's, um, it must be late, right? Late at night? Uh, yeah. It's getting to a quarter before midnight. Uh, I should have called on you first. I didn't think of that uh, until just no, now. No, that's fine. But actually, this time's better for me, so it's it's okay. Okay. Well, it's great to see you again. I really so don't glad. mind waiting. I mean, I got a chance to listen, actually, to an entire show live after a really long time. So I was I was really, really happy with it. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you could. Um, and so what do you have to share with us this week? Um, I have a prompt poem, and I sort of went back to my old ways of writing light verse, because this time that just seemed the most appropriate to me. 
uh, basically my phone i mean if anybody takes my phone all they're going to see if they open the gallery is pictures of like flowers and trees and plants and basically that's it uh, but the sad part is that i like admiring them i just can't seem to grow any plants myself <laughs> i can <Daddy>. relate <laughs> like i think that the one thing is the hydrangea right there is a happy uh, a happy plant but everything else um is dead <laughs> or or in the process of dying I, so i can relate to that but but these are beautiful flowers i'll show the picture on the screen for everybody at home um <laughs> so my poem is basically so also at work uh, this month every week uh, we're sort of holding like poetry contests and i think the prompt the i think it was last week was to write sort of a humorous poem about what you would do if you were a serial killer uh-huh. and I, i thought that that prompt and this poem sort of fit this picture very well seeing as how i can't seem to keep any plants alive and well what does that make me if not <laughs> exactly. a serial killer so that that's basically what this poem is about well you and me both let's hear it <laughs> serial killer oh i'm definitely a serial killer but my dead bodies aren't buried under pillars instead i kill way more plants than those pesky wasps and ants and even those giant monarch caterpillars that's it i'm taking a break and putting away my shears and my rake i'll just save myself the trouble and head on to the store on the double to stock up on potted plants that are fake <laughs> that's so great and i uh, yeah it's perfect and see, this even this this is the best i've done and you can see that the you know the the well where is it the uh it, the the death is is approaching i'm i'm trying my hardest i i've moved this like does it need more sun does it need less sun does it need more water does it need less water looked it up on the internet i don't know so there's that but anyway <laughs> thanks so much for sharing i that. just i just to get my fill of plants and trees by going down to the garden that's there in our apartment complex and like oh flowers oh trees oh leaves oh so pretty oh green okay Bye. I'll just admire you from here. I'm not going to be responsible for killing any more of nature than we humans already are. So I I leave that to oh, you know, just that that's not me. Yeah. You look beautiful there. Just just stay there. Yeah, well, good thing nature knows what it's doing or we'd all be in trouble. <laughs> I know. Oh, excellent. Well, they're very fun as always. Thanks for for sharing. Glad you could be here live, Nivi. It's great. Thank you, Tim. It was lovely being here. Yep. Bye-bye. Yep. Have a great Have a day. day. Thank you. That was uh, Nivy DeCarthic, of course, with Serial Killer, um, uh, which we all unfortunately are. And I forgot, sorry, Susan Telly is also here. Sorry, Susan, I, I left you out of the, I don't know, you disappeared on my little window and now you came back. Hello. I have a problem that it's, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah, you're, you're here oh, good. now. It's working. Yep. But I'm also like the Skype used to do. I hear the two audios at the same time. So. Oh, do you? You must have um, your window because there's the original stream, and then we have guests on through the Zoom. So you must have that open still. So just shut that off, and then you'll only hear me. If you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, you can either mute or uh, or X out of that. Honestly, I don't think I could do that. I've tried, hmm. and I can't do that. Hmm. Well, can you? Do you hear reverb? No, I hear it. it's fine for me. So um, okay, yeah. So well, if you want to just put up a poem and I'll read it. Yeah, go ahead. Go mind. ahead and read it. Yeah, <laughs> I sent in a picture too. 
Yeah, we're ready. So go ahead. I have the picture here, which is a leaf on the window, uh, and then there's sort of a brick building across the way. So uh, that's the that's the picture, and here's the poem. Go ahead, whenever well, you're, you're ready. I'm going to ask you to read it now because all I see is four pictures of four people. <laughs> I just okay. haven't. I'm going to ask for help for this, but I'm. I look forward to hearing you read it, if you don't mind. <laughs> okay, no problem at all, Susan. So yeah, I'll just read it myself. Okay. So um, here we go. This is uh, okay. So this is uh, dalliance, which is a word I don't know actually. Dalliance. I'll have to look that up after I read it. But um, dalliance. Like a house guest, my visitor stuck to the window, confident in its signature or singular nature, and curious elliptical beauty. The glass canvas gave my subject transparent charm, unlike the opaque African violets on the sill. My watercolors would need less blue as any leaf rendered after rain. I thought about sunlight, the wash of summer blends, the way this leaf dipped off the color chart into the translucent glow of a yellow-green newborn baby frog. But newly vulnerable, the leaf already was curling, preparing me for its leaving. Oh, that's wonderful. And then look, I look back at the photo for those who can watch. And it is beautifully described there um, in the poem. Uh, and, and it is that, that translucent color. It's really wonderful. I love that, the comparison to frogs there. Thanks so much for sharing that, Susan. And sorry that the technical difficulties are, are an issue. But, but we see and hear you fine. So whatever it is, um, we'll have to figure out. But, uh, but thanks for joining. And that was Susan Talley, uh, once again, um, with... Um, dalliance. And, oh, yeah, and I want to look up dalliance because that is a word I don't know. So let's see what that means. Dalliance. I always love learning a new word, and I can force you to learn it with me. A casual, romantic, or sexual relationship. Dalliance. A brief or casual involvement with something, such as Berkeley was my last dalliance with the education system. Very interesting. So uh, I learned a new word. I love that. Um, let's see. So we do have a little bit of extra time to see uh, maybe some people who sent poems in. I could do my other poem, too. Yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll do my other poem, too, and then we'll do other poems that were emailed in. So so I did, like I said, I wrote a bunch of poems on a plane, uh, which was fun. Um, and I'm not going to show the picture for this, because it's a picture of my daughter. I didn't have an asked her if I could share it. But, um, but you can imagine the picture of her, um, from my phone, of uh, her, her cradling a... Um, a stink bug. And the prompt, the extra prompt that I got for this one was from um, um, Joe Barker, who I thought might be here today. He, he usually watches, he participates in the Critique of the Week during the day, um, but it's too late for him on, on, the, on the Rattlecast Nights, I've heard. Um, but he asked me to write a poem with the insect in the title. And so the title was originally Stink Bug, and I changed it since to Thanatosis, which I think is a slightly better title for this poem. Uh, but it was inspired by that and the photo of my daughter holding one of these big creatures. And here, uh, here's the poem. Oops, where we go? There we go. Nope, that's not it. Here's this poem. So this is a Thanatosis. And it's a hyben, so be ready for that. Thanatosis. My daughter won't share a room with a spider, but cups the giant stink beetle in her own two hands. Shows me how the shell is strong, how it's light as the air around it. Bigger than her thumb, she loves how they move with a slow grace. It's only playing dead, she tells me, setting it down on the side of the footpath as if it were a game. Morning dew, every blade bows to you. That is my hyben, also based in the prompt this week. So a couple of weeks I've, I've missed a couple, so now I'm sort of caught up 
with uh, two poems this week. Uh, thanatosis is that that uh, feigning dead behavior that insects exhibit. If they, a lot of um, their predators are um, animals that track movement, like birds. And so if they play dead, they, they become invisible. So, um, you know, insects have developed this, certain insects, including the California stink beetle, I should say, um, developed this as a technique to avoid being eaten. If they notice a bird looking at them, they'll play dead. And, you know, they really look dead. They don't move at all. And then uh, the bird can't see them and then flies away, and then they start walking again. So that is thanatosis. Okay. Let's see what else we have, because there's a little extra time. Here is a, um, this is um, um, Potter O'Donohue. Um, he says, I'd like to hear me read it. So, of course, and here's the, his photo describing for those at home. This is interesting. This is a sort of an abandoned kind of area. And we have two shopping carts here, um, sort of facing off in a, in a sort of patchy grass field Um as if they're they're maybe gonna like like two bulls about to charge each other or something. <laughs> so it's two shopping carts in a field. And um let's see let's see this poem. Uh, this is Potter O'Donohue. Uh is there a title? I think it's untitled. Maybe it's I don't know what happened is the title. Here we go. I don't know what happened, but it might have been the sort of thing that happens on an overcrowded train or overcrowded bus, or she asked me if I was okay. How should I know? Said maybe I should go to the hospital, but I'd never heard of a pub called the hospital. <laughs> Besides, I didn't seem to have any money. Do you need some money? Oh, I'd love some money. How much do you need? About 50,000 euro would be nice. I meant money to get home. Precisely. Are you sure you don't need the hospital? Oh, I'd love to go to the hospital, but I don't know where it is. We could walk there. I could walk you there. Thank you. I think I remember the train was late or I was late for the train, I think something might con- that might conceivably happen, but usually doesn't happen, happened on the late train, or the train I was late for, a crowded train, no doubt, or was it a bus? We were at the hospital now, but it didn't look much like a pub, or how I remember a pub to be. Maybe the rain, maybe the train was a pub? I can't get a drink here, I said. I know she would have replied if either of us had been there. Yeah, a really interesting poem. And again, there's a great photo, too, by Potter O'Donohue. Thanks so much for sharing that, Potter. Uh, let's see what else we have. I think Clayton Clark sent one in. Uh, she says, there's too much noise outside my house, so I hope we can read it if there's time. Thanks so much for the interview with Julia. Here is a photo, and this is another interesting photo from her camera roll. Um, there it is. So this is a photo of um, somebody um, like a, in a Jason mask. Um, and, and in front of a piano. So it's like a Halloween maybe thing. And Jason is that like hockey mask, but it looks kind of menacing. Uh, and there's another person next to him and there's a red and white striped candle. That's how I can describe it. And so let's see, uh, let's hear this poem by, um, by, uh, Clayton Clark. It is, it kind of looks like an egg. So here we go. It kind of looks like an egg face masked with zipper and pock marks loved by those who play hockey if anyone's in the mood to go hunting for treats left by a rabbit, it's not bad camouflage, minus the physique that sports it on this day of Christ's rising, having risen. I'm not surprised or frightened by this incarnation, since this version is only our son who's come to visit, even help prepare the celebrant meal, with his, with his human brother and others here, grateful, hungry, and contemplative. By candlelight we sit down to potatoes, ham, and green beans, toast to the miracle of love, unaware of what's to come. Very interesting. 
Yeah, that, that's a very interesting um, turn in that poem there. I love the ending. And again, once again, one look at that picture. Um, that was Clayton Clark with, uh, it looks kind. it kind of looks like an egg. Okay. That is going to wrap up the uh, open lines for today. The pro- or the Saiku for this week, let me pull that up. The Saiku for this week is here. This is based on research from the University of Michigan, which I will put on screen. I'm always interested in evolution. That's one of the topics that I find fascinating. And um, this science article is based on the University of Michigan. Um, I can fit it here. Apes may have evolved upright stature for leaves, not fruit, in open woodland habitats. So for the longest time, the theory has been that apes started walking on two legs so they could reach up to get fruit as they moved around the forest more easily. Um, It turns out through a series of anthropological studies looking back at what the world was like where they were 10 million years ago, that they were actually these woody grasslands. And so it was more... Uh, and, and then the, they also found that their teeth were made for um, for chewing leaves and not fruit at the time. Um, and so our ancestors actually developed bipedal walking to move through the grassy places from sort of copse of tree to copse of tree while eating leaves. And not, um, as we thought, to eat fruit in a lush forest. So, so overturning some uh, theories on animal evolution. And, um, and so the psyche, it's, one, it's sort of a far leap, but maybe you can see... Um, how it got there, but this was my uh, haiku that it inspired. Break in the rain, the cardinal on a branch deciding. Break in the rain, the cardinal on a branch deciding. That is the psyche for this week, and that is the show for this week. Uh, a really wonderful one with Julia uh, Dasbach, um, and uh, just wonderful open lines too. Thanks everybody for joining on the unusual time. Uh, next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be back at the regular time, and we're going to have Tresha Faye Hefner. Um, Tresha has been—we've uh, been, she'd rattle a few times, um, but she's also the host of the Poetry Salon and the founder of that, which does just wonderful work on teaching poetry. She's sort of an expert in teaching poetry. She has a book, Method and Mystery: A Research-Based Guide to Teaching Poetry. So we'll talk about that a lot. She also has a new book out, which we'll share poems from as well. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to this. Um, Trisha is just a the brilliant poet who knows a lot about, about poetry. She's been doing these uh, the Poetry Salon for I think 15 years or so. Um, this next week's guest, Tresha Faye Hefner. Oh, and I forgot to say the prompt. I'm sorry. The prompt for next week, based on Julia's book, is here. Choose an object and use it as a metaphor for the body. Write a poem using Julia's style with colons. So, so Julia's book, if you if you remember, it was um, using that that metaphor of you know the baby is the size of a, a plum today, the baby is the size of a cantaloupe now, that kind of thing. So use a metaphor like that for the body. It doesn't have to be fruit; it can be fruit, but it can be something. But find something, use it as a metaphor for the body. But then write the poem in that style using colons as simile kind of markers, and move your way through the poem as if you're moving through similes. Um, and that's going to be the prompt for next week. A little more complicated than usual, but we've seen many examples in Julia's work, so hopefully we can do that. That's going to be the prompt for next week. And then, like I said, once again, next week's guest is going to be Tresha Faye Hafner, talking about Method and Mystery, her newest book as well. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. That's the regular time, uh, Monday, April 24th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Uh, good day. Good day.